Well, greetings to each of you in the Master's name. This morning, there was a line in that song Brother Brian had us sing here after Sunday school that is very powerful. Lord, I am coming now to receive the anointing divine. All that I am and have I am bringing. Lord, from this moment, all shall be thine. That goes in part with the message this morning. Those of you who have King James versions of the Bible, please open to Hebrews chapter 11. This is a continuation of my series of messages from my Bible school lessons on separation and nonconformity. We're at day four currently. The last message was focused on the identity of God's people, the identity of the Christian. And this is somewhat of a continuation of that, but it looks, it looks at the um, individual Christian a little bit more. It looks at the um, more how he views himself. Uh, yes, we view ourselves through our identity, but um, it's maybe just a little bit different perspective on that. So those of you who have King James Bibles, I want you to read with me Hebrews 11:13 through 16, beginning at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city." I hope that you will commit those verses to memory if you don't already know them. Uh, those verses have a lot of meaning in them in relation to us as Christians in the world. Now you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. The title of the message this morning is From the Inside Out. I'm going to begin reading at verse 44 of Luke 24. Then he said to them, now, maybe I should make this comment before I read this. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples after his resurrection. Uh, he meets them on the seashore and gives them some fish. No, wait a minute. Um, he meets them in a room and he asks them for food. And they give him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And then he says to them in verse 44, these, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Uh, 
somewhat of a final message here. Um, it's these verses that I begin my Book of Acts class with uh, that I teach on the alternate year. And the reason why I begin with this because Luke wrote the Book of Acts as well. And then he has the corresponding verses in Acts 1 that talk about this power of God coming down, coming to the disciples. But there's a couple of things in these verses that I want us to notice. The first is in verse 44 where it talks about the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is saying in this verse that the things that have happened, that they witnessed, the fulfillment or the completion of those things was a fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures. Not only the fulfillment, but also would produce the fulfillment. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more later. The second thing I want to notice here is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ corresponding with repentance and remission of sins to all nations. So, the, the things that happened to Christ, His suffering, His death, and His resurrection all correspond with the opportunity that we have to have remission of sins and repent, corresponding repentance and remission of sins for all people, for all nations. And then... In the last verse, he said, I send the promise. He's not talking here about promises. He's talking about the promise. What promise is he talking about? Well, it's a promise for all nations. And there was a promise given in the Old Testament for all nations. It was a promise to Abraham. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And Jesus is saying to His disciples that I'm going to send the promise of My Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. The promise was going to be power from on high. So, part of the message this morning is thinking about how we should view ourselves. But it's also not just how we should view ourselves, but also how God views us. How does God see people? I think about God's view of humanity and often superimpose myself into the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere somewhere where I can look down and see the, see the globe. And what does God really think about us human beings running around down here on this little ball in the middle of His vast universe? What does He really see when He looks at us? When He sees the things that we do day by day, what does He think? Well, how did Jesus see people? Maybe you can think about an instance when Jesus saw someone and the way that He saw that person. So He saw the Pharisees, or He looked at the Pharisees, and He brought condemnation on them often. Why? Because they did all these things on the outside, but inside they were not clean. There was hypocrisy there. The centurion was praised for his faith. He was a political enemy. But Jesus didn't see the political enemy. He saw a man who had more faith than anyone else in Israel. Jesus saw a couple fishermen 
rough men, uneducated men, that he felt could be rocks, stable foundation stones in his kingdom. Jesus loved a rich young man enough to tell him the truth about his love for money. He welcomed a tax collector into his kingdom, something a good upstanding Jew would never have done. Jesus didn't differentiate on the basis of wealth or politics or social status or health. He viewed people for what they really were in God's eyes. And he said, except you humble yourself and become as a little child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what did Jesus see? How did he evaluate those people? Well, there's a few little phrases that come up. If you're reading through the Gospels, you'll see these phrases pop up. Like, knowing their heart. Jesus saw what was happening in the heart of people. The condition of the inner person. He saw a woman dropping money into an offering box. And he said, she's given more than all the rest, even all her living. He saw the significance of the sacrifice that she made. To a tax collector, he said, today the kingdom of heaven has come to your house. Because he was a tax collector? No. But because he was a man who was willing to change, to align himself with what he knew was right. He entered the temple and said, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have, caught, you have made it a den of thieves because the quality of their worship wasn't there. Jesus brought equality to the value of the soul and called people to align themselves with God's value system. It didn't matter who they were. They could become part of His kingdom if they were willing to align themselves with God and God's call to them. I want to think a little bit about the biblical view of man in some different in some different areas and I'm going to try to do a little illustration up here on the board you look at those you're probably pretty glad that I'm not the creator but uh, we're going to start out with Adam we're going to make the first man a created man initially created man before the fall and the white the, the, the outer part represents his body. The inner part represents his soul. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Adam was sinless. He was free from all sin. His soul, the, the breath of life was breathed into his soul, and he became a living being, an eternal being. His soul was eternal. His body was sinless and immortal. But the fall happened. And because of that fall, instead of life, there was death. And correspondingly, after the fall, you have sin multiplying on the face of the earth until the abundance of the thoughts of man's hearts were only evil continually. And so then you have in Ephesians 1 and 
sorry, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all have had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So there's three things I want to pull out of those verses. One of them is this condition, from God's perspective, is dead. Disconnected with Him. Separated from Him. Separated from what life is about or what life could be. There's a spirit that works in these people. It's a spirit of disobedience. It's a spirit that is not aligned with the will of God and cannot be. And it is by nature the children of wrath. The innermost being of the person who is not a child of God is a child of wrath. That is their nature. That's the core of who they are. It's the core of their being. And that's who we were in our fallen state. The terms for this man in... The New Testament, in Romans 6, 6, you have the old man. And in Romans 8, 8, you have in the flesh. So let me just, actually, let me turn to those because I'm going to use those passages some more. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So, what Paul is saying here is that this old man must be crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we would not serve sin. Then, in chapter 8, verse 8, Paul's talking about the flesh and the spirit. And he says in verse 8, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, are you in the flesh this morning? In the sense that you live in a physical body, yes, you're in the flesh. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the life that is controlled by the flesh. Because after Adam fell, he was controlled by his own desires. That was the highest thing that he had to live for. And so he was in the flesh. And before we come to Christ, we are in the flesh. We are controlled by our flesh, and by our passions. The passions of the flesh. <clears throat> so what happens when we become a Christian? Uh, let, me, let me back up to that phrase in our, or that line in the song there that we sang. John 12, 24 says that except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it bring forth much fruit. That person has to die. We have to bring all to God. Everything. And Jesus goes on and says in another place that you must lose your life if you'll be His disciple. And I know some of this stuff was stuff I shared at the baptism service recently. But there's something that happens when we become a Christian I think is vital to our understanding of what it means to be separate people and to live separately. And that is that into this dead creature, 
And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Into this creature who has been marred by sin, who has lived a life, say, 10 or 15 or 18 or 40 or more years serving the self, serving the old man, when we come in repentance to to Jesus Christ and to the work that He has done for us, we are able to receive life. When we come to that place of death where our life ends and we give over all that we are into the hands of God, He gives us life. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you have in Genesis 2-7, you have God breathing life. I read that earlier. And in John 20, 21 and 22, you have God breathing life again. Then said Jesus to them, Peace be unto you. As the Father hath sent me, even so send I you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. God breathed life. And he breathes new life into us through the Holy Spirit. Well, what needs to happen for that, for us to experience that? Well, Jesus said repentance and remission of sins. So we need to repent. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Peter is concluding a message here after Pentecost, beginning at verse 36. Therefore, let the house of Israel know surely that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ through remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to repent? Well, in part, I've already stated it. It means to give all of who you are. But there's more to it than that. Or maybe what's contained in that. What does that mean? There's four aspects of the heart that I see here that are affected in repentance. The first one is the mind. When they heard this. When they heard the truth that Peter was sharing with them, they were convinced in their mind. They were convicted in their mind. And they had a change of mind. They had a recognition in their mind of what Christ had done, of what Peter was saying. The second thing is that their conscience was pricked. They were pricked in their heart. Their conscience and their emotions were both affected. Both parts of the heart. The third thing is the will. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And so true repentance is more than just agreeing with God. It's submitting ourselves to the change that needs to happen in our lives. It's a total transformation of what we were in our mind, in our will, in our conscience. It's a total submission of that to God and a change over to His way of thinking. And when we have that, 
change. That kind of repentance. That kind of effect on our heart. Then is available the promise of the Father. Because Peter said, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You will receive the Spirit. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3. But later on in that chapter, he says he won't enter the kingdom of God except you be born again. To be born of the Spirit, we need to repent, have a total transformation of our being over into the hands of God. I call Luke 11.9 God's 9.11. Because in Luke 11.9, it says, Ask and you will... Seeking you shall find, not going to be open to. I better read it. Beginning at Luke eleven nine. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Seeking you will find, knocking it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. The Holy Spirit is available to us. If we ask, seek, and knock. So, Jesus said, the presence of the Spirit in John 3 was like the wind. You can see the effects of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So is the wind blowing in your life? Is the Spirit working? Is it there? So I want to make a fourth adjustment to our illustration here. This little star uh, in here is representing the life of God coming in. And what happens is that the effect and the presence of that star begins to push the things out of our minds and our hearts and out of our lives the things that we did before we were a Christian. We spent years, you spent years before you were a Christian training yourself to think and act and live selfishly. And the presence of God, the light of God, those sins are washed away but the memory of those sins, the remembrance of those things is still there. And the light of God comes in and it illuminates those things for what they truly are. And you begin to put off those sins. And that's what it means to grow. That's what it means to mature in your Christian experience. Is the wind blowing? Are you maturing? Are you growing? Colossians 3.5 Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put to death those things. Those physical, those things that you did in your body to please your body, put those things to death. I left my passage in Romans. Two verses there again. Romans 6 and 8. I just want to pull out the last part of verse 6 again. 
that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We no longer have to live after that life of God has entered to give us power, that we're endued with that power from on high. We no longer have to obey our bodies to fulfill the pleasure that they are asking for, that they're demanding for. We have a power within us that is greater than the power of this world, than the power of our bodies. And then 8.13, the last part of that verse, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now I'm not proof texting here. I just want to come back to that verse later. Because there's two verses before that that we need to consider in, in another illustration. But through the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. So there's ongoing life that needs to be happening. There's ongoing things that need to be put to death. Galatians 5 tells us, if you live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, and you must have an abiding relationship with me for fruit to grow. So there has to be a flow of power that comes through through me, from me, to you. And then you have Acts 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. That's being. That's not acting, that's being. And when that being is there, then there's an effect that happens. There's change that happens. There's growth that happens. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said to them, this is Acts 4.8. Sorry, I, broke, I, I cut that verse in two. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of it, people and elders of Israel, if we this day be judged for a good deed done to a hapless, helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. It's through the knowledge of Jesus. Peter says in 2 Peter Chapter 1, he says it's through the knowledge of Christ that we receive this power. Romans 8.4 tells us that it's through this power, this power of the Spirit living within us, that the righteousness of the law is fulfilled. And then back to 2 Peter. Sorry, did I say 2 Peter the first time? 2 Peter 1.4, that's through the knowledge of Jesus. And then 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3 says that we obtain godliness, power for godliness, grace for godliness, and a new nature. We're talking about from the inside out. Jesus said, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter that the outside of them may be clean also. And there's two implications that I want us to get from that. One of them is that both must be clean. Jesus isn't looking for just the inside clean and the outside unclean. Jesus isn't looking for the inside and the outside unclean. Jesus is looking for a cleansed inner being 
that is cleansing the outside as well. The inside will come out. That's the other point that Jesus makes with this. What is within us will come out. I'd like for us to consider back to those things I mentioned about how Jesus evaluated people. The condition of the inner man. He looked at that and he evaluated on the basis of how they lined up. The reason he condemned the Pharisees was because the inside and the outside didn't line up. There was something wrong. He looked at the significance of that woman's sacrifice. Not just at the fact that she gave the money, which was the outward thing, but also the desire of her heart that was the inner thing that wanted to serve God with that little bit of money that she had left. Zacchaeus wasn't just willing to change. He was willing to change to align himself with God. And he desired to make that change, both the inside and the out. Jesus wanted worship in the temple that was truly honoring to God, not just about making money. He wanted the hearts of the people to be right, and He wanted their worship to be right. Christian maturity is the combination of the inner and outer person being aligned with the opinion of God. Are you aligning both your inner person and your outer person with the opinion of God, the will of God? That's what it means to mature as a Christian, is to move towards that goal. There's a couple of points that I've been trying to make throughout this in, re in reference to separation. First of all, separation can only begin with a change of who we are. Without the presence, without repentance, without the presence of the Spirit in our lives, we, can't, we will not be separated from the world unto God. It has to start there. The power of the Spirit then is the means by which we live faithfully for God. It's the only way that we can be pleasing to Him. It's through the power of the Spirit, Christ living, Christ working in us. And what God is looking for is that kind of divinely powered obedience. God wants obedience. He wants that outward expression of conformity to His will. But He wants it as a result of the empowerment of the Spirit of God working in you, in your inner being. And you submitting yourself to that. And taking up your cross every day and giving yourself to that. Time was slipping away from me and I didn't read the passage in 2 Peter verses 1-4, through but... The interesting thing about that is it talks about all these promises, these great and precious promises and divine nature and the ability to, to live free in the world. And then it says in verse 5, add to your faith, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. And that give to your, give all, giving all diligence has to do with like bringing alongside so you received all these promises and you have this wonderful inheritance in God in which He's placed His divine nature on you. And with that, you're supposed to bring alongside, very diligently bring alongside, by the way, with haste. It means like with speed and haste and carefulness. You're supposed to bring alongside all these virtues to grow in your Christian life. 
And then it says, it concludes that path, or kind of concludes that thought in verses 8 through 10. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall be neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things and blind and cannot see afar off, for he hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Wait a minute. Fall? There's a possibility of falling? Yes, there's a possibility of falling. Turn back to Romans 8. There's this battle that happens between the flesh and the spirit in Romans chapter 8. And that battle is, is the Christian's battle. The Christian is waging war. His spirit, his life in the spirit is waging war against his flesh. And he is putting to death his flesh. And Paul says this, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. This is verse 12. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And so I brought up this thing to people about the fact that this old man must die and that you become a new creature, a fully new creature in Christ Jesus. And they say, well, what happens when somebody falls away? Does the, new, um, does the old man come back to life? No. The new man dies. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Why do I bring that up? I bring it up because I see in my own life my lack of diligence. Am I being diligent to nurture and build and grow the life of God that is within me day by day? What am I doing? How diligent am I to add those things in my life? If, you, if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, ye shall never fall. We today need to be diligent if we're going to be faithful Christian church that's separated from God to the world. May the Lord give us the grace and strength to live that out.